have this product called Detox Plus. And what this is, is this is a product that's gonna help support your liver. This product also helps other systems like your lungs. It will help your skin. Remember your skin is your largest excretory organ. It's going to absorb everything you put on it. It's also going to excrete as much as of it can through the skin. The great thing about this is the NAC, N-acetylcysteine, is helpful, again, for those liver cells, cleaning them up, because it makes what's called glutathione. NAC is the precursor to glutathione, and you make glutathione from NAC in your body, and it protects your body and detoxes your body from almost all the contaminants that you have in your food and in your environment. So it's very important. The other thing that this has in it, this has specific herbs for the liver. So if you think about your liver cells, like the drain in your sink, all the gunk, when water goes in, you're doing dishes or whatever, the gunk goes into that filter and it catches the food and then the water goes into your drain, right? Because you don't want all that food down your drain. Well, if you think of a liver cell kind of like that strainer in your sink, all the blood's gonna come in first bypass, it's gonna clean up all the chemicals, all the gunk, all that, and then you're gonna get nice, clean, healthy blood coming out of the bottom. And I know for those of you who are hunters and who have seen livers in action, you know that when a liver gets damaged, they're very bloody, right? There is a lot of blood in a liver. That's because they're, all those cells are in there filtering the blood. And so the liver is a very interesting organ um, it's very nutritious and it's also, it's highly dense in things like B vitamins, vitamin C, selenium, etc. And it's okay to eat liver because the liver is not an accumulator. It is not accumulating waste, it is clearing out waste. So that's one thing. People get worried about eating organ meats and actually the liver is cleaning itself out all the time. So something like Detox Plus is going to help you do that. It's going to support the gut restoration program. And um, overall, it's gonna help all your kind of excretory organs as well, kidneys, lungs. We also excrete through the lungs um, and the skin. This is also something that you can take daily. So I actually take this daily because we're all basically bombarded with chemicals, with plastics, with um, things in our food that aren't so great. And so the Detox Plus is gonna help you to just help your digestion, help your liver work a little bit better, and help give you that NAC to glutathione that's gonna help you clean up. So I hope this has been helpful. The Gut Restoration Program is free at stealthynutrition.com under programs. Um, you put your email in, you'll get that program for free. And of course, all the supplements are there as well. everybody welcome back to the haunt harvest health podcast this is dr hillary today's podcast we are going to talk again with my friend scott matura he's a chef here in bozeman and he also is a blogger and writer on all aspects of food the last podcast that we did was about the bliss point and sugar salt and fat and how they play on our brain we also talked about some history with sugar just some really intriguing podcast and we got to know Scott but since then Scott of Scott and I get together once in a while and we record some topics that I think uh, we like to talk about and uh, we recorded a couple podcasts so this podcast today is going to be all about food labeling 
and how the big food companies figure out what we will become addicted to. And uh, Scott turned me on to this book called Hooked. Um, it's Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. It's it's written by a guy named Michael Moss, who actually wrote the book Salt, Sugar, Fat. So if you haven't read that book either, that's a good one, which really talks about the bliss point that we talked about in our last podcast. But yeah, Michael Moss's book. So I've been reading through this. So intriguing. Uh, and I find it interesting that the food companies, they really prey on our own unique chemicals within our body that we make um, to figure out how to get us addicted. And as you can imagine, one of the neurotransmitters that they really plug into is dopamine. So I was just going to read this really quickly about uh, a short paragraph from the book, so about dopamine. Um, it states, for starters, we don't need the harsh compounds found in drugs to get hooked on things. Our brain has its own slurry of chemicals that are exquisitely formulated to get us to act compulsively, dopamine chief among them. Indeed, they're so good at directing our behavior that drugs are designed to mimic these native substances in our heads. It's true that, as measured by the stir in our neurology, not even Doritos jacked can muster the depth of the cravings raised by, say, cocaine. But one hallmark of addiction is the speed in which substances hit the brain. And this puts the term fast food in a new light. Measured in milliseconds and the power to addict, nothing is faster than processed food in rousing the brain. Addiction is also deeply enmeshed with memory, and the memories we create for food are typically stronger and longer lasting than any other substances. Childhood memories of food can wield an uncanny power over our eating habits for the rest of our lives, and the reverse is true too. When a celebrated chef and food writer began losing her memory through Alzheimer's, it had devastating effects on her senses and passion for food. In this regard, memory is just as potent as food itself, informing the habits that can lead to addiction. This is such a great book, easy read. I highly recommend it, Hooked. Check that one out. Another book that I've read that I have in my library that I love is called The Molecule of More. This is by Dr. Um, Dr. Daniel Lieberman and Michael Long. This talks about dopamine. This is a very interesting book if you want to learn about dopamine, and uh, maybe I'll do a whole podcast on this, but I love this book as well. So um, yeah, with further ado, I'll get to Scott here. We're going to talk about all different things. As always, go to iTunes, leave a five-star review, tell us what you think about the podcast, maybe send me a note through the website at StealthyHunter.com if you have topics that you want to hear about. Uh, I'm really going to be directing this podcast as we move forward into health. Ryan will be on here, here and there, but I feel that health in the hunting industry, like we just need to start promoting this and we need to start, um, I need to start getting out there more and helping you guys just have the resources that you need for more abundant health. I love this community, uh, want to help it. And I feel so grateful that you are all here listening. All right. Enjoy this podcast with Scott Chef Machura. So today we are going to talk about a uh, interesting topic related to food and that is labeling. Um, you being a chef, me being a physician, nutritionist background, uh, we probably both look at labels when we're buying food. 
sometimes we, again, might be differing in why, what we're buying the food for and what we're looking for. But um, let's talk a little bit about the pros and cons of labeling in the United States and, and some of these other, maybe some other countries. Uh, and then we'll get into some aspects of labeling that I think people aren't really aware of. Well, a quick takeaway on labeling, particularly with the United States versus Europe, for example, in the EU, is that our labels are far more detailed mm. than Europe's. Um, we're required to be much more detailed in terms of what the actual ingredient is. A great example is having to call something on a U.S. label high fructose corn syrup, whereas in the EU... They simply have to call it a sugar. Mm. Uh, so that's really a big that's really a big one right there. Yeah, I think there's some rumors, and maybe maybe it's not rumors. I don't know. It's like I haven't heavily researched this, but there's a lot of information out there of people saying that as far as what goes into the food in Europe and some of these other countries is a lot healthier than what Americans are, you know, these companies are putting into American food. Um, I think what we're talking about today is labeling and the things in that you want to watch for in the label. And so it does sound like we have a little tighter control on the definition of something like sugar, like exactly. Because you said in the last podcast, there's how many types of sugar? Oh boy. Just a very roundabout number, about 50. About 50 types yes, of sugar. That I know of. Right. And and I'm not even have the background <laughs> or the nutritionist background that you do. And there's about 50. Okay. So most of those, again, another topic we chatted on was corn. Most of those sugars might be coming from either corn or they're coming from sugar cane. Right? Correct. Correct. And I know beets too. Sugar beets are another source. When I was a kid growing up, uh, I did a year of high school in Billings and I went to Billings Senior and my bus route went right by the sugar beet factory. Billings has a sugar beet factory and it always had this weird smell. Um, I just, it's, that's a smell from childhood that I have is the sugar beet factory. Um, on the school bus, driving and, by there every day. And in the spring and f early fall, when you're, you know, it, in the end of the end bookends of the school year when it's warmer, I bet you could be fooled into thinking you were even going past the landfill. Yeah. It's I mean, it's really a very stinky. intense. Yes. Yeah. Um, sure. So those would be what we know as sources of sugar, but there's also syrup and honey and. Um, oh my gosh, so many different types of uh, sugars, as well as alternative sugars, we'll call them more processed sugar that's been turned into alternative sweeteners, right? And well, here's a segue then into, into the labels is that, so on, certainly in US labels, ingredients have to be listed by volume, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing on your ingredient list has the highest percentage. Now in certain Europe, labels throughout the EU, they have to tell you the exact percentage. We don't do that, which is fine. We at least have to tell you. So when you're looking at a label and it says corn on a bag of Doritos, for example, well, it's the number one ingredient in volume, but here's where it gets tricky. They list them in order, but something like sugar. Well, imagine having a label 
that has five, six, seven, eight different sugars in it, all in different ratios. So you might see high fructose corn syrup as the fourth maybe ingredient. And then you might see, you know, maltodextrin mm. farther down. You might see dextrose. You might see sucrose. You might see any number of things. And in and of themselves, you think, well, that's a sugar that's way down the list. There's not much. We'll add up those seven or eight different items and do the math. Mm. Suddenly it's the largest ingredient in a bag of Doritos is sugar. So it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Okay. So let's chat a little bit about the label and what, if you're going to look at a label, what are you, what are the first things that are going to kind of stand out for you when you look at a label? Um, like as far as labeling the laws go, um, what are we required in America to do when we have a product, let's say a food product, um, how is the label supposed to be laid out? So it's supposed to be laid out two major things, again, by volume. Uh, so largest ingredient first, smallest ingredient last. And then also we're required to have a much more detailed list of nutrients, minerals, fats, sodium, sugars of any sort um, by portion size. That's a big one. By serving, we call it. And many servings in foods, everything from healthy to snack food, the servings are very small. And we, we both know that, you know, a small, let's keep going back to a bag of Doritos. A small bag of Doritos has about 13 chips in it, right? Who eats 13 chips at a time, right? <laughs> you open three or four of those things. So, you know, a serving size is all fine and dandy, but the serving size is very small. So when you're looking at a label and it says at the top per serving, that's per that bag. Or if you're, let's, let's go to a giant bag. They're breaking that larger bag down into about 12 to 15 mm -hmm. portion sizes or servings. Mm -hmm. So that, that people get fooled. They see only it, it only has this percent of sodium or this percent of, right. you know, trans fats. Well, right. That's if you eat 11, 12, 13 chips. Well, let's do, Not for if example, eat the whole bag. you brought a Doritos bag. And I did bring a, single, a Doritos this bag. This is a single serving bag. Yeah. So this this is what you'd give your kids in like their lunch. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So how many servings is in that? So this is one serving. Okay. So there's one serving in this single serving bag, which yep. is good. Yeah. So this is going to be better representative of what you're actually getting. I think Correct. the larger bags are very confusing because right. the parent takes a big handful of chips out, they put it in their kid's lunch. That could be two to three servings. Easily. Okay. So let's see what's in a single serving and then let's think about what that you know, that will that will equal out what you would you're supposed to be eating in one serving. Right. But. Right. So one small bag of cool ranch Doritos is one ounce and it's hundred and fifty calories. Now think about that for a second. That's to me, again, a, as a chef, not the nutrition side of me, that just right away is a red flag that that is very high for one ounce of food, mm -hmm. right? That's a huge, that's a, you could probably talk more on that, but to me, it just seems like that's a huge percentage of calories for one ounce. Um, What's the ingredient again? 
Sorry. I'm saying calories, 150 calories. Oh, it's 150 calories. Right. Yeah. Right. Again, I would go back to, and I think we talked about this. Maybe we didn't. I've been talking a lot about this lately. Calories are not equal. Right. Not all calories are created equal. So we can get, we can talk about that in a minute, but it would depend on the food, I guess, the calories. Exactly. Yeah. So another thing I will look at, so I look, we look at the volume and the ingredients list in the, in, the, in the little square they print you with tiny, tiny writing because they don't want you to read it. Um, but looking under the calorie in the serving section, they always list their fats first. Everything's always in the same order. They go, they go total fat, cholesterol, sodium, carbs, and protein way down I know. I've always noticed that on labels. Proteins like that, it's like the afterthought macro. Right. Which is crazy because it's almost the most important macro, especially for people that are getting older, like you and me. Our protein is heavily tied into sarcopenia and just future muscle mass Mm -hmm. and hormone development and everything else. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so your total fat, and then they break into saturated and trans fats. And those are the ones you really want to see low numbers, right? Of course, you can speak much more to that. But your saturated and trans fats, you want to stay, you want to stay really low on those. Of course, you know, you're going to have those fats when you're buying a bag of Doritos, right? Um, And much like calories, not all fats are created equal, right? Avocado fat versus... Yeah, like if this Saturated if there was a, the same amount of fat in this bag, but it was half an avocado, very different than the trans fats we're seeing in here. What is the actual fat they add? So the here you list? go. Saturated fat is five percent. Total fat is ten percent. Okay. And saturated fat is five percent. Okay. So if you're looking at total and the, and and the other fat they don't really list as another fat in here where you get down to cholesterol, sodium, and total fats. But saturated fat is 5%. So let's just say there were 13 chips in this bag. You know, the better part of two of those chips, one and a half of those chips is pure, pure fat. Okay. And that's a lot. It's a seed oil fat correct? That they're frying it in? Correct. Correct. We have corn, canola, and sunflower. My favorite, canola rapeseed. So we know, and it's coming out slowly but surely, is that the seed oils are poisoning our fat cells. And they have been replaced into the low fat things and to the healthier fat range. But we know when they're fried they become even more dangerous, right? Like when they're heat, a lot of these are heat stable, much more than like if you take extra virgin olive oil and you right. fry in that, that's going to become more rancid because right. of the quality of it. Right. So a canola oil or a grapeseed oil or probably a corn oil or something is, can tolerate higher temperature. Right. But we do know that it turns more into a trans fat. Right. And maybe you can help me explain that a little bit because you're the chef. And so you're using these fats. Well, I'll interject something really quick about olive oil. Just yeah. really quick. It pains me when I watch on television, when I watch a chef or somebody suggests that we should get a hot, get a skillet hot and put olive oil in it to saute. Don't saute well, you know with what? olive oil. The second you see smoke, it might as well be lard 
Yeah, from a fryer. It doesn't matter. It's causing, I think, those poofas. Those I forget the whatever, but it's basically rancid fat. You're you're taking your your oil and you're heating it up to a point where it's now basically a toxic substance and or rancid. Yeah. And your body has to break those down, and it's hard for those to do because oils are fat soluble. And again, back to the seed oil, we know that they're storing themselves in fatty tissue, which be your fat, the lining around your nerves, things that are fatty in nature, Mm -hmm. your visceral organs, because you have all this visceral fat that protects your organs. Um, But back to that, uh, what was I going to say? So when I was in undergrad, nutrition undergrad, now you did not go to culinary school, but I went to nutrition degree and we had to do cooking classes. And back then, this was 2000, I graduated in 2002, we had cooking classes and we were using olive oil for, to start all of our, and I went to a healthy school. So I learned whole food nutrition. We were sauteing in olive oil. And then the progression from the time I was an undergrad to a decade later is do not use olive oil. So I think a lot of chefs are probably trained in that too. Old school, they were using olive oils and, and we never used canola oil because it was unhealthy. But when you take your olive oil and you heat it up to high temperature, you're basically doing the same thing. You're causing this rancid, more toxic oil, right? Yeah. And from a chef standpoint, flavor, um, it makes it bitter. Makes it bitter. And well, that makes sense Why because that, olive right? oil has a very distinct taste. Correct. Right? Even Part- when you saute in it, it has a very, just like if you saute in coconut oil, it has a right. very distinct right. taste. Particularly Italian and Tuscan. They have a hot, peppery, much more bitter mouthfeel mm-hmm. than other regions, you know, Greece or Spain or Morocco. Okay. Um, uh, a, a tidbit about canola as well is that uh, in the Middle East, Diets are very much similar. Iran, Iraq, Israel, Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, etc. Yeah, Lebanon. Uh, their diets are very similar, but Israel is seeing a much over the last twenty twenty five years a much more rapid and larger increase of obesity, mm-hmm. and diets being very similar and all things equal except. Israel uses a much higher percentage of canola oil than the other countries. I don't know why. Hmm. Could be a connection to the U.S. and production. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. But there's a connection there to obesity. And so there's more obese people in Israel? Yes. Than any at of a, other growing at a faster rate than surrounding countries. Right. Yeah. Uh, I know there's some information too, not just the the oil use, but probably... Um, I heard something about like Dubai and these other countries that are, they're very wealthy countries where like people have access to quite a bit of money, uh, but they are having really high diabetes rates, um, obesity rates, kind of like the Western world. Uh, There was some correlation to the fact that it's also, these are very hot countries. So people are, you know, they're just inside a lot Mm -hmm. and they're eating these Western diets now and they're not as active. Sure. So that leads to it. But it would make sense, you know, canola oil. Why do we use canola oil? Because it's cheap? 
it's so easily produced meat. and it's cheap. So we use it in mass amounts. It's it makes we chefs, restaurants, food industry. It it makes it's it's fairly inexpensive, and so it has become a major oil in terms of volume for things like fryers, for fryer oil and fast food, or right. you know most kitchens have most commercial kitchens have a fryer. The large amount of that, we've gotten away almost entirely from peanut oil. You'll still have people come in and say, hey, I have a peanut allergy, so what fryer oil do you use? It's, it's, you're hard-pressed to ever see peanut oil in a fryer these days in most kitchens. Canola is a major ingredient in those. So there you go, right? So, yeah. What about in a high-end restaurant, like some of the restaurants you worked in? And, you know, are, are you using canola oil as well? We're using canola oil as well. It's... You don't have a lot of options for variety of oils commercially for your fryers, if that makes sense. Yeah. They're 35-pound jugs. What's that math? 35 pounds. You know, Jeez, 35 pounds. So, yeah, they're about, you know, seven gallons. Yeah. I'm sorry, about six gallons. Anyway, um, it's hard to find a huge selection. So the bulk of it is canola. Because it's a balance of, it's got a decent amount of flavor. It's got a decent amount of, you know, I'm sorry, a decent smoke point. So, mm -hmm. so that's huge. Okay. At one point, we kept a fryer for some specialty items that was, um, and you're going to cringe now when I'm going to tell you this as you're looking at me across the table, <laughs> uh, like, Wagyu beef lard. And when you look at it on its surface, you pull it out of a of a large bag and pick up this big this big piece, right? This huge thing, and it might break into two or three. They're about you know ten, twelve, fifteen pounds or whatever they are, and you they have them together. And we always rendered it really low and slow in a huge in a in a huge pot because once it rendered out, we would we would strain out about oh I don't know. In volume, we would probably strain out three quarters of a pound of solids, just meat, hard fat, sinew that doesn't melt down, um, you know, pieces of protein and meat, just, just you know, mm -hmm. quote unquote impurities. And then we would strain that out before we put that in the fryer because we don't want all of those in the fryer. Right. It's just, it's just, it just burns and gets hot. And so, but with regards to something like that, I'm going to I'm gonna put a question back to you in real time that I don't really know. I was always taught that any fat that is solid at room temperature, you want to avoid. But now we talk about lard, butter, um, margarine, is its whole, margarine is its whole other thing. Margarine but lard, is a plant. Right. Yeah. Lard, butter, you know, bacon fat, they're, they're solid at room temperature. Well, interestingly enough, my husband just, let's see, he had bear fat from his spring bear and he just rendered it down and he just puts it in jars and we don't have to refrigerate it. It sits in a counter and when it's cooler in the house, it's hard. When it's hot in the house, it becomes liquid. It's like coconut oil. And we use that. I mean, I've made pie crusts out of it and it's really, really stable. And I think that's, so that as far as like shelf life, I think that's the benefit of it. And it can get warm and it's not going to lose, it's not going to get rancid. Whereas like an olive oil, you don't want it getting warm over and over, right? It's going to become rancid. You don't want it, you, yes, 
Correct. And you don't want temperature changes. Temperature as changes. As few as possible. Light exposure, or like these things that are, that that's very sensitive to, like the bear lard isn't, it's just like in mason jars and you can scoop some out and put it in. Now it has a very distinct flavor. And so you're going to pair it with things that you're not like, what is this? Um, but to me, as far as like what's healthier, that I think the word healthier, I think that's questionable. I think that we have sort of, we've so poisoned our food system with foods that our ancestors would not readily eat at all. It's hard to know when you say healthy. So yeah, it's probably healthier to eat a little bit of canola oil, like your French fries fried in canola oil, than to be doing like rancid trans fats oils. However, I, I, I would think it only almost be healthier to eat a, it fried in lard is if you're going to eat a more natural animal-based product that your ancestors would have eaten. I think it's dose dependent. And the issue that we have nowadays is because these trans fats and these plant seed oils are pervasive, they're everywhere, like Doritos, fried in this. So that's one product in an entire grocery store. But if you were to go down the aisle of the chips, if you were going down the aisle of the cereals, if you were going down um, tortillas, if you were going to go look at the sandwich meats, if you were going to go look at salad dressings, barbecue sauces, they all, almost all of them have a plant seed oil in them. Correct. And And because you can't add lard to ketchup for a fat, like I don't think there's fat in ketchup. Let's say salad dressing. You can't add a fat like bear fat to a salad dressing because it's going to be hard sitting on that's not going to work so you need an oil like olive oil but then olive oil is going to become more rancid if you're not careful so then you put a canola oil in there a safflower oil it's going to be a little more shelf stable it's not going to get hard it's going to give you that smooth texture in your mouth of a fat but it's really not giving you healthy fat because Because of the nature of it, I guess. As sure. far as a nutritionist, that's what I would say. Now, is it is it healthier to eat than lard? That's questionable. Because I can't go back and look at my ancestors 100 years ago when they didn't have canola oil and they were using lard and say, were they necessarily healthy? Because they had other stresses in their lives that were compounding them. Disease, you know, poverty, uh, you know, not access to good health care, like all these things. But were they, if they had all those conveniences we have now, would they be healthier eating the lard than the canola oil? It's hard to say that. It is but hard as to far say. as ancestry goes, how long we've been on this planet and how we've been preparing food, the animal-based products to me make more sense as far as that. And And I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like they are better for flavor. They are better for like flavor. Like the Wagyu beef fat. Like, I mean, frying something in that, like that's got a lot of flavor. Oh, it was delicious. Make no mistake. We'd find excuses for staff meal to put things in the lard fryer and the Wagyu lard fryer just because it was so good. <laughs> Julian carrots, French fry. Oh boy, you name it. It yeah. was fun. So Crisco is vegetable shortening. Yeah. Yeah, it's shortening. Yeah. And let's see. But highly processed. High all vegetable shortening, they call it. They also, Crisco makes pure canola oil. Um, I see on here. Oh, it's soybean oil. That's what it is. So, yeah, fully hydrogenated palm oil. 
palm oil, mono and diglycerides, TBHQ, which is a preservative, and citric acid. So there's no trans fats, 50% less fat than butter. Um, excellent source of ALA omega-3 fatty acids. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I think they're getting that maybe from the palm oil, gluten-free and kosher. Uh, but that's what it is. It's a vegetable oil. So, you know, back in the day when grandma was using Lord, they slowly transitioned everybody over to Crisco. And then when I right. was a kid, everybody had a can of Crisco. Right. Like I, I never saw people baking with lard. Right. Um, and my grandparents were much like yours, were the generation of the 50s quintessential housewife. You had Crisco, you had Betty Crocker, you had all these convenient foods. Right. And uh, then we went through, I'll call it the dark period of margarine. Margarine. Yep. I remember my grandma. She always bought margarine because it was better for her. It was the healthy choice. Yeah. But she grew up, she was born during the Depression, and she grew up in the World War II era. And like, was it really healthier? It was the marketing. The marketing was the key. And just like today, marketing is the key, right? Absolutely. So I think the labeling laws, and you can maybe tell us when labeling laws started. Can you tell us that? Like... Because I know a lot of food, the FDA and all these these regulatory things started from mishaps in the past, the abuse of power and the poor food supply and all these things. These organizations started coming up to regulate our food. But, you know, the marketing that came in in that time that was so heavy on like, be like your neighbor and be right. healthy and do, you know, it's easy. It's just easy to buy Crisco. You it's don't convenient. have to save time. Convenient. Yeah. So again, marketing is the key, but okay, let's keep going through the label. Well, we hit, we hit through a lot. I would touch on this. You, you just mentioned something about timing. Late sixties and seventies saw high fructose corn syrup. It saw microwaves. It saw mm -hmm. better, more thorough labeling. It saw many more sugars come out. I mean, so a lot of things. It saw it's it. That's when we were first introduced to uh, sugar-free, fat-free foods into the early '80s. So there's a 20-year window there where our food really, really changed. Mm -hmm. um, a McDonald's burger was no longer 100% beef, right? Corn involved in that. So that window. So you could just sort of sandwich it into the '70s is when a lot of that really. Really. And and the book Sugar Blues had already come out in the early 70s or mid-70s. I'm forgetting the year. But where it was already warning us of the perils of sugar and high fructose corn syrup and its many iterations. Mm -hmm. So, um, But labeling, again, back to being much stricter in the U.S. than in Europe, they just don't have to tell you what sugars they are, that they're just sugars. Mm. They don't have to tell you what colors they are, only color. European labels will tell you that it is colored. If something has a yellow or orange or red hue, they'll call it annatto in parentheses, which is a seed, desert seed, I believe. But it's a seed that has a red dye. They used to, it, it, Native Americans used to use it to, yep. to, to color. Um, whereas we have, you know, yellow number five, blue number one, red number 40, right? We, we, so to our credit, we have to at least tell you now, now what do, what do those mean 
to the average person reading those colors, they don't, they don't know. But for better or worse, we're actually putting on a label, right? right? So ketchup, Heinz ketchup in Europe, the label will say tomatoes, but ours says tomato concentrate, right? So it starts right there. Ours says high fructose corn syrup. There's says sugars. Mm. So I do like the greater detail that we do use. So for those of us like you and I who do like to read a label, and I'm always encouraging people to read a label, at least we have a little more knowledge, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that segues into me a little bit too. You mentioned preservatives a couple times a few moments ago. And I, and I was writing an article on labeling not that long ago, and I thought, boy, for all the preservatives we put in food, our food sure aren't preserving us, are they? Because we haven't, we haven't, we haven't increased our lifespan much. In fact, it's actually, I think, dropped a year or two. You might be able to correct me on that. But our our lifespan has halted mm. in the last couple decades. And I believe it's no coincidence to all the foods and all the processed foods we have and all those things yeah, in our I bodies. Yeah, I kept up on that, so I can't really quote as to what the lifespan is. I, It would make sense to me. Um, and the other thing is, you know, epidemiologically, having long-term studies of what our food has done to us, I mean, there's a ton of research out there, but... You know, if you're talking post-war era, we, we know that a lot of the things that are in the food supply and that just in the, just in general, plastics and Teflons and all the things that we kind of poisoned ourselves with to make life easier, we do know that there is a lot of data to point that these were not healthy decisions um, that we embarked on, you know, in the last century. Uh, it's hard, though, still to 100% due to really the short time span that we have of these things being in the supply of how they, the long-term um, ramifications are of it. You know, when I look at things like heart disease and heart disease is obviously the number one killer. Um, we do know that when you're talking about fat, you're talking about cholesterol, et cetera, that, you know, there's a huge correlation to these. I, my guess is that the types of fats are going to affect that, but we also know that a very small, almost minimal amount of actual cholesterol, which would be considered a fat, is actually absorbed through food. Like, you know, we make food, I mean, we make cholesterol and then we also absorb it through the food supply, but through through our gut, but there's some, you know, there's there's this talk of we don't really absorb that much. so is the type of fat that we're eating actually affecting us in other ways by creating oxidant damage to the body? Because we know that, again, these are lipophilic molecules that come into the body, these fats, and they have to be broken down um, very differently than like a water-soluble product needs to be, right? And um, could it be the actual type of fat, even though it looks like we're eating less fat because we're in the low fat and these fats seem to make it, are they actually increasing heart disease based on the oxidant damage and the ramifications of reactive oxygen species that are happening in the body to clean these bad oils up? And that's doing damage to the vessel because we know part of the mechanism of cardiovascular disease is damage to the vessel wall.
And when you get inflammation in there and you get damage to the vessel wall, then cholesterol, if you got it around, it's going to do its job by trying to patch up these holes. And so is it actually these bad oils that are now introduced into us? Because heart disease was not the number one killer a hundred years ago. Heart disease is actually a fairly new condition since again, post-war era, 50s, 60s, 70s started going up. You know, presidents started having heart attacks, which was like unheard of. There were things happening and you could see it in society. So again, 100 years ago, it was probably more hygiene issues and uh, lifespan wasn't quite as long. So again, hard to dictate what that is. But we also know that now heart disease is rampant. I think it's like, I don't know how many times more than cancer and cancer is number two. It still trumps everything. Yeah. And is it the quality of oils that we're eating that are causing these? And so we focus in on cholesterol, but really with cholesterol, we, we could talk about that forever. But the types of fats that we're eating and the, and the damage that they're doing inter- into our internal cells, and then that's creating damage in the vessel, and then the vessel's inflamed and it's having to, re- you know. Mm-hmm. So those are always the questions with me when we say not all fats created equal. And we don't we're just starting to see the ramifications of what our grandparents were doing to make their lives easier. Because remember though, they were born in the depression. They lived through starvation. They lived through poverty. They weren't consuming food the way we are, um, et cetera. So a lot changed in their generation. They tried to right. set it up. Like we lived a hard life. Here you go. Here's, we're going to make it easy for you. And now everyone's like, Whoa. and, Hard. We look at this poison food supply now. Hard men make hard times. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or I'm sorry, I had that wrong. Hard times. Hard times. Hard make, men make tough men make easy times. Tough easy men times make, make, easy make times. weak men. Right. So yep. we're rotating around. We're we're in that second one there. The overwhelming majority of jobs and labor, then also was physical. Yeah. So burning calories, moving joints move everything right mm-hmm. there were there were no laptops and coffee shops right yeah. so um uh, a little bit less intrusive than the fat and sugar is the many uh preservatives and additives in foods that they're they're not harmless in that they're very highly processed but a lot of them are for mouthfeel for texture mm-hmm. uh for visual appeal so then you have a whole group of xanthan gum, guar gum, niacinthiamine, mononitrate, folic acid, citric acid, a lot of those. They're all, they're all kind of lumped into, you know. Um, well, those are, a lot of those are B vitamins. A lot of those are B vitamins. A lot of those are B vitamins. the food back with because they stripped everything. Right. But it's not the same mm-hmm. as you kind of just no. were saying, right? So they all come from wheat, from corn, from vegetables, but then they pull them out. And then they reintroduce them. Synthetic. And it's just not the same. Your body doesn't recognize it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you know, with methylation defects. So when you see in a lot of these fortified foods, you'll see the niacin, the riboflavin, the thiamine, and that you'll see a folic acid. Folic acid is a synthetic folic acid. It's, and a lot of people these days, we know that some people with methylation defects who can't process folates and stuff, B12, etc., folic acid is poisonous because your body has to take folic acid and 
it doesn't know what to do with it. So if you eat a folate in like a leafy green, your body knows more what to do with that. And folic acid was added to all these foods because they started realizing women were having reproductive issues, right? Where babies are miscarrying, neural tube defects, you need folic acid. So again, with the other B vitamins, they're highly fortifying these foods and that will help you have folic acid. But if you've got methylation gene issues, you just can't break that folic acid down well. So it becomes poison. So now we're taking what was probably naturally in the food before we processed it. And then we're adding a synthetic nutrient because we realize, uh-oh, kind of need that in our food supply. But now those synthetics are sort of po have poisoned us over time and people can't break them down. So you can look at people's blood works and see they're actually fully deficient. And it's like, how are we having deficiencies, you know? And, and I go through this quite frequently with really healthy people. It's like you're B12 and you're fully deficient. But this isn't the way to resupply it, right? Right. We're eating fortified right. food. Right. Yeah. Better to not have it back in there at all than to do what we've done to it and then reintroduce it, right? Um, there's some less offensive ingredients. And as a chef, I would say it's funny. So, so a couple of things that come to mind are xanthan gum and guar gum. And they're for mouthfeel, stabilizing, emulsifying, stability, um, and they're in foods. And, you know, as a kid, I'd read a label and go, xanthan gum, I want to buy that at the store, right? Um, but the reality is you're seeing chefs use the, some of these ingredients more and more often, citric mm -hmm. acid. Mm -hmm. xanthan gum, guar gum. I've kept those on shelves in, in recent kitchens I've been in as far back as 2008, 2009. Um, a little chef trick is, you know, you can buy citric acid powder and it's a wonderful stabilizer. And it's also uh, a nice little ingredient that keeps green vegetables green. Mm. So maybe a little bit in your blanching water or in a blender when you're going to puree a sauce or something that you really want to keep that vibrant, you know, spinach, parsley, those are really good green. There's so much chlorophyll in those. They just have such a great vibrant color. Chives is another one. Um, a little bit of citric acid, a little, little bit of a pinch, a tiny pinch of powder in those uh, will help preserve your green. So again, for a visual, a little chef trick. Um, xanthan gum and guar gum are great for sauces and dressings to hold some consistent stability. Mm -hmm. So just a little, just a little tidbit there. We are, we are crossing over and branching over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, and even before, even before us in the United States, as far as chefs and some of our, our top restaurants, uh, France and particularly Spain, Areas like Barcelona, San Sebastian, there were, there were um, inventive chefs and creative chefs, innovative chefs that were working with things like guar gum powder and xanthan, mm -hmm. or, I'm sorry, xanthan gum and guar gum for just those reasons. They make a really nice, stable uh, sauce at room temperature. Yeah, they kind of thicken things up a little bit. They too, do. A right? little goes a long way. Yeah, a little. Yeah. I've I've cooked with some of them before, and you put too much in, and it's like, uh, you gotta start over. Yeah, it, it, it looks too... like it looks like mortar, right? Yeah. It's just it it'll just it'll be goopy, and then that right. So it's all about portion. 
Mm-hmm. So um, those aren't quite, you know, I don't view as the chef on the chef side of things. I don't view those the way I did when I was younger. Right. I actually use them myself sometimes for, How for good quality. How did you view when you were younger? Well, just, just, just in the broad sense of reading a label and seeing something like xanthan, you initially, if you don't recognize it, you wonder what it is and you assume it's, you know, why is that in my food? Oh, yeah. It's just not as, it's just not as, not as serious, I guess. Well, I think too, sometimes with the labeling laws, uh, there's a little bit of, people just get overwhelmed with all the different forms of each thing. So if they put like B1, B2, B3, people might go, oh, okay, this is a B vitamin, right? But they spell these long words out, these chemical names, and people kind of go, oh, my God, I can't even read that. So it's, it is a little bit confusing because sometimes you'll look at a label and there's a lot of things on there. But if you actually know biochemistry, like those are all like nutrients or whatever, but it can be quite confusing to actually se- separate what's okay and what's not okay, right? Um, that's where... I think it, we could make it a little bit more simplified. Like, you know, obviously you're a sugar. Well, that could be a million different things. But if we could simplify some of these ingredients that people would look at and maybe not be so freaked out about, be like, okay. <laughs> um, and like in these Doritos here, are, is there, are they fortified? So is there fortification in there? Let's see. You've got all your oils and your sugars we talked about. There is a little bit of cheese milk because of the flavor of the ranch and buttermilk, technically. Got your blue, your yellow, your red, and I'm not seeing anything fortified. Okay. So I'm sure the grain that they're using in the corn is... And I don't even know if they have to fortify corn, per se, when they break it down. Probably not. I think more we're looking at like a weed or something where they strip it they're stripping the wheat down they're taking the germ off the germ is what holds all the b vitamins so when you have a white noodle noodle versus a wheat noodle typically you're going to have more b vitamins in that germ the wheat right same thing with brown rice so they're probably maybe with corn they're not too worried about that i don't 100 percent sure um let's talk a little bit about in the united states the prevalence though, kind of going from what you're using now, but a lot of the additives and chemicals that we're using for flavor enhancement, like MSG. Sure. And there's a big, I, I think most people know what it what, You have a little bit of history on MSG because you've written an article on this, right? You wrote a, wrote a blog. Yeah. Again, plant-based, animal-based, everything from, you know, beef bones and marrow to to certain vegetables, like one that always comes to mind is shiitake mushrooms, right? Mm-hmm. And we were discussing a little bit before we started recording that shiitake mushrooms were really one of the foods that was at the forefront of recognizing the fifth flavor beyond salt, sweet, um, bitter, help me out. Salt, oh my sweet, gosh. bitter, sour. There you go. Acid, sour. Pungent. Um, umami. And umami. Yeah. Is sort of the fifth the fifth flavor. And it was shiitake mushrooms and certain types of shiitake mushrooms that really started to get us noticing this mouthfeel 
that's just a it's just a it's almost a, a warmth, a tingling, a satiating feeling that goes, you know, right to our brain. Mm-hmm. Speaking of sugar in the last podcast, goes right to our brain. Um, but shiitake mushrooms have a large amount of the some of the natural sugars and chemicals that we now know as MSG. And it was developed uh, by a Chinese man. And that's where we started to associate MSG with you know, if you eat Chinese food, you know, you're going to get the, you're going to get a sweaty forehead and your, your heart's going to race. And well, to some degree that's true. Um, but it got a little bit of a bad rap for those reasons. There was very little research done on it. Um, the new England journal of medicine way back, I think 68 or 70, somewhere in there, just almost arbitrarily linked heart palpitations and, you know, sweats and things like that to MSG and some of it, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So it got a bad name early on and it's a flavor enhancer. Right. And just because you don't see monosodium glutamate on a label doesn't mean you haven't been consuming MSG. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in many, many, many processed foods of varying amounts. And it's, it's it's made for that umami, satiating mouthfeel. And the other side effect that it has is that you can't stop eating. So how many times have you been stuck in traffic and all you had was a bag of Doritos or even like the healthy chips, right? Like when I lived in Seattle, I did so much commuting, uh, you know, and I'd go to like Whole Foods and I'd pay all this money for the fancy chips and all this stuff. And then I'd end up sitting on the freeway in traffic notoriously. And then I'd be starving. So then I'd open these chips and I'd start eating them. And you just can't eat like five chips and you can't even eat 10 chips. The next thing you know, you've eaten half the bag. And I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. And part of that is that glutamate receptor, that umami, the mouthfeel, but also that salt is is stimulating your nervous system to continually ask for, ask for it. So you just keep eating it. Sure. And that's the other thing is uh, sort of bypassing the signal that you've had enough. Um, I think we talked about this last time is like fat by itself. Like you could only eat so much fat, your body just, there's a threshold. It's like no more fat, right? Protein is pretty much the same way. Sugar. Now you can eat, you could keep eating a lot of sugar. And I think MSG would be put in this too, this salty thing where your brain's getting overstimulated, like give me more, give me more. And so you, you eat too much of it. And that's an important distinction. That's an important, you know, thing right there is that it is at the it is at the lower end of the salt and sugar. In that, you know, you you talk about oh, to give him sugar, he's too hyper, you know, whatever. He gets so thirsty from a lot of sodium. That is where a large amount or an excessive amount to whatever your body body weight, your metabolism on that given day, little too much MSG, and you will start to feel a little like energy, little heart race, a mm-hmm. uh, little, you know, I, I call it, you know, the sweaty brow, but just get a little, you know, you get that racing. Um, but it's not an allergy. They have yet to link MSG to allergies. Mm-hmm. Um, placebo controlled study after study, and they can't, they can't link MSG to, to allergies. 
Well, you know, the interesting thing is when you put in monosodium glutamate into PubMed, which is where, you know, we go look at research and that's really where the biggest, if you want to go in and just type anything into PubMed, kind of stuff will come up. Um, It's crazy how many studies have been done on the toxicity of MSG and, and what it does to the body in toxic levels. Um, and it affects all the systems, reproductive system. You and I actually had a discussion before we got on here about how they, they did a study here where they were looking at reproductive toxicity. It's actually toxic to the, to the receptors for testosterone and spermatogenesis, creating mm-hmm. sperm. So is it re- creating reproductive toxicity? Um, and there's chronic toxicity at low dose, obesity. There could be some correlation with obesity, cardiac toxicity um, via oxidative stress, like I talked about earlier, like what oils are doing to the body, um, hepatocardiac derangement, which is liver, heart, you know, issues. Uh, and the gastrointestinal system is their effects on the gastrointestinal system. So uh, migraines, all this. So, you know, it could cause a vast array of problems. So some people get the flushing. I think that's what we would correlate the Chinese food syndrome with. You get flushed, sweaty, ugh. But some people like transit time increases, like they have to go to the bathroom right now, right? They have stomach pain. They get a migraine, um, and there's things that elevated heart rate, they're getting that stimulation. But then there's, looks like there's things going on here. You don't even know that it's going on. You're getting hepatotoxicity, you're getting reproductive toxicity. And th- when I start looking through this research, whether or not it's some of these are scientifically um, relevant, if you're taking young children and you're feeding them tons of glutamates all the time in their food supply, like these Doritos here, are guaranteed there's, they probably even put MSG on the label, right? It probably says monosodium glutamate. It doesn't? They've got, well, variations of disodium guanulate and disodium inosinate. Which Those are, are all versions of in, MSG. They're, they're all versions. They're in the MSG family. In the, in the vein of sugars having different names. Those are all MSG family. Yeah. And so like we are feeding young children these foods and reproduction is a big issue today. Uh, And this is where the food supply, it gets so complicated. Like it's the, the system is set up. Obviously we need to eat. The food system has to supply food for a lot of people. The cheaper you can make things, the better your bottom line and then you make through marketing, you basically make it physically attractive. And then these food scientists making it palliative to the umami and to the sugar. And so you got all this in. And now your kid, like every day, he needs Doritos. He's throwing a fit if he doesn't get Doritos. And it's not just the sugar in there. It's these glutamates right. that are stimulating <clears throat> the nervous system. Right. They're stimulating you to in, a, in, in some sort of way become sort of addicted to it. Yes. But then you have these young children and now they're getting this toxicity that they're building up over time. And then they become a young adult. They have fertility issues, maybe testosterone issues. I mean, we've talked about testosterone on here a ton. If, if it's modulating the GNRH receptor in spermatogenesis, it's changing possibly testosterone, FSH, LH. These are all hormonal. These are all hormones. Mm-hmm. 
how is it affecting fertility? And we do know that sperm counts have gone down considerably since our grandparents' day. Correct. What's causing that? Is it just obesity? Is it excitotoxins? This is a group of excitotoxins. Is it all the sugars? Is it these plant oils? Like it's so almost complicated that yes, it's probably all of those. And, uh, that's why when you look at Doritos and you read the labels, it's good to understand what's in there and understand what these are doing to the brain. So here's the list of glutamates. <laughs> here's the list of some of the things that it, it doesn't say MSG, but it could be. So when you read the label, it'll say MSG. That would be easy. Autolyzed plant protein, autolyzed yeast. I see that in a lot of the healthier chips. Yeah. You know, the brands you buy at the co-op or whatever, they have autolyzed Because they still need mouthfeel. They still need that umami feeling Yeah. to compete on the market, to have you say, well, these are terrible. They taste like styrofoam. You throw them in the garbage and you never buy them again. That's to prevent that. Yeah. Good point. Calcium caseinate, citric acid, when processed from corn, right? You can get citric acid. You can create it in a lab. You get, It's a vitamin C, basically. You can like I said, I can buy plants. it in bulk in powder. Yeah. As a chef, I can buy it. Gelatin, glutamates, hydrolyzed plant proteins, hydrolyzed vegetable protein, uh, monopotassium glutamate, natural flavoring, natural meat tenderizer, sodium caseinate, textured protein, yeast food, and yeast extract, which is another thing, again, I see a lot. It'll say yeast extract in it. And then there is a very long list of <laughs> all the things that could contain MSG. And that's from gums to malodextrin is a big one. Modified food starch is another one. So not only do you have the sweetness of malodextrin, you have the glutamate of malodextrin. So you got like right. both, boom, mouthfeel, sweetness, and preservative all in one. Well, think about this as we start to wrap this up here. Think about this. Um, Doritos. We go keep going back to the bag of Doritos. And I said, what's there probably 12, 13 chips in this bag? Oh, I can't just eat one or... You know, we, everybody, you, you, the portion seems too small, right? And you want to just keep eating, keep eating because you have that flavor and that, that umami in your mouth and it, and it connects to your brain. A lot of that besides sugar is let's just, let's lump it into MSG. A lot of that yet think about on this label, this list is quite long and the last two ingredients. So if you remember, they're the smallest two by volume ingredients in this bag of chips are both forms of MSG. Yet think about that draw to eat one more chip and one more chip and one more chip. Yet those two versions of MSG are the last two ingredients. So that's the, sure. that's the intensity. That's the power of it. Hmm. That's the draw it has in our, in our brain. Hmm. Wow. Crazy. Um, and I think as far as labeling I feel like the most simple ingredients, the less ingredients, but that doesn't always mean it because again, a lot of these words that people can't understand, they're actually nutrients. So it's not necessarily something toxic. Um, but when you're looking at something, you want to think of the less ingredients. And this is why we promote a whole foods diet because if you can look at a food and know what's in it without having to have it have a label, that is what your body's meant to eat. So like a Snickers bar versus a peanut. A peanut like is a peanut. Maybe some people can't eat peanuts, but like that's a whole food. 
peanut oil, um, all the, the peanut butter, even though peanut butter, you can get wholesome peanut butter, it's straight peanuts, right? But like Jif and all the stuff they add to Jif. And then, then you have a Snickers bar. Now you add all the sugar and you add all this other stuff. There's a lot of stuff on that Snickers label. That food, maybe you should consider not eating that food. Right? Absolutely. I think the benefit that you have as a chef, though, is like when you learn about food and you learn about food combination and then you learn about flavor combination is you are making food from multiple different things, right? So like the Doritos has a lot of stuff in it because it has to be preserved. It has to have that mouthfeel. It has to have that. It has to in a bag. It has to sit in a bag forever right. and stay good. You're making meals, though, like right now, right there. So using the more whole foods and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Is, Absolutely. You know, um, probably not as much preservative, I guess, depending on where you go. And so those whole foods, it comes down to temperature and texture are two major things. You're getting a hot meal, right? Mm -hmm. You could buy a processed TV dinner or processed meal or hot pocket in a store and it's got all of these things on this label to make it taste good at any time of day and any month you buy it, that same product. Well, we don't have that ability, not to even want that ability as a chef. We don't have that ability for lack of a better word and the resource. But what we do have is the ability to, to, to prepare an incredible quality steak, simply seasoned with salt and pepper, hot, crispy on the outside, tender on the outside, right in front of me, right? So temperature and texture are huge. Um, they're huge players for us as chefs to make up the difference in what we don't provide and, and don't want to provide in all the processed ingredients. Mm -hmm. So some takeaways for me, for somebody reading a label, I would say, look at your, look at your fat, your trans and your saturated fat percentages, keep them as low as possible. Do a little research and find out what are sugars and find out how much sugar is in something. You want to stay away from that as much as you can. Again, there's 50 some sugars. So look for, look for words, look for sugars that end in OSE, look for some of those and just add up just because dextrose is the 19th ingredient down the list. Doesn't mean collectively you don't have a lot of sugar and more importantly, pay attention to your first five ingredients because again, American labels, and I think the EU labels as well, uh, ingredients are listed in order by volume. Mm. So at least pay attention to your first five. And if you can keep, whenever possible, if you can keep the fats and the sugars out of the top five, at least, at least you're doing something, you're on your way. Yeah, and I would definitely agree with the fat portion of it. Try to pick foods that have a more... Uh, a less toxic fat, I guess I would say. Um, the seed oils we're starting to know now, it, it can take over a decade to detoxify these from your fat tissue. So the rate of obesity and in people that are doing all the right things, they're eating the healthy food, they pick the healthy salad dressing, they're doing the exercise, they're doing that. We're seeing this inability to lose weight like maybe you could have in the past because you're holding on to a lot of these toxic um, things that are making it hard for you. You know, when you lose weight, you got to detoxify fat. You got to get rid of fat. So um, that's a big piece of it. Well, cool. This is really exciting. I think everybody's going to benefit from this. Um, awesome.
Thank you. And hopefully it speaks to the listener that you and I have very, and we laugh that we have very different directions sometimes yeah. in our food, yet there's no question some commonalities and some and some uh, aligned beliefs that we have about food. Mm-hmm. For sure. That okay. should say something. Yep. All right, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. <laughs>